y'all welcome to the show everybody welcome to the show uh unfortunately we cannot shut the fuck up about joseph rogan and joseph robinette rogan i'm just kidding robinette is not his middle name that is joe biden's middle name um the view defends him shocking um semi-defense i guess i would say not a full defense You'll see, you determine for yourself just how much of a defense it is, if it's robust or not. Um, We have Alex Jones going nuclear on David Pakman. But the most amazing thing is, like, why he did it. The reason he did it is fascinating, because um, I don't get it. I don't get why this of all issues was the issue that um, he decided to go after David Pakman for. Uh, California Democrats had the opportunity to pass single payer, and they did not. They ran out the clock in the most grotesque way imaginable, and uh, Crystal Ball had a wonderful monologue on this that I want to share a piece of it with you. Uh, We'll talk about that. Maddow is going, going, gone from MSNBC, at least from her daily show. Um, Republicans have released their plan for running in the midterms. We'll talk about that. And um, we do have good news in today's show, believe it or not, but there's uh, American manufacturing is roaring back, and... uh, that makes me happy. So that's just a little little piece of what we got going on today. There's much more. Stick around. You'll enjoy it all. Me thinks. Me thinks is a weird phrase. I don't know why anybody says that. I don't know why I just said that. All right, let's go ahead and jump into it. The Joe Rogan story will not go away. Uh, everybody seems to be fundamentally incapable of shutting up about Joe Rogan. Myself included. I mean, massive hypocrite. I'm annoyed at the fact that everybody keeps talking about him. But here I am talking about him because I feel compelled to because of 
all the dialogue going on. So um, I don't want to go through the whole timeline again. You can watch the previous videos on it uh, in order to get a sense of the way everything unfolded. But bottom line is he's being accused of spreading misinformation. He had two very sketchy people on, uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough. Uh, I watched those podcasts. I, I went through and tried to, like, fact-check the claims as they were talking. Those guys are wrong about a lot of stuff. I mean, that's the bottom line. And they do uh, promote vaccine skepticism. And so there's been a backlash as a result of that and some other things, I guess you could say. And um, But the backlash, in my opinion, is unreasonable because people are just flat-out calling for censorship or deplatforming or, you know, uh, trying to put pressure on Spotify to ax him. It started with um, Neil Young pulling his, his catalog and then... God, I always forget her name. Joni something or, or another uh, pulling her catalog. Then you have Bruce Springsteen's guitarist. I mean, these are all older generation uh, folks for the most part. There hasn't been anybody like Drake or Taylor Swift to do it, for example. Um, and then today we learn Mary Trump, one of the forgotten Trumps who's like anti-Donald Trump, said she's going to pull her podcast from Spotify. Um, and... Now we're at the point where the dialogue has shifted just a touch. I'll give you all the specifics on it in a second, but this video may surprise you a little bit. The hosts on The View did uh, kind of a defense of Rogan now since he released his video explaining his position. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a full defense. It's more of like a semi-defense. But nonetheless, the uh, general implication of what they're talking about here is clear, and their point is like, all right, now we are where we are. What else are you going to do? Let's see what happens. So let's take a look, and then I'll react. Join the boycott of Spotify for letting Joe Rogan invite guests on his podcast who push COVID misinformation. Now, Rogan addressed the controversy last night. Take a look. They have an opinion that's different from the mainstream narrative. I wanted to hear what their opinion is. Those episodes were labeled as being dangerous they had dangerous misinformation in them. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. I am going to do my best in the future to uh, balance things out. I'm going to do my best. But my point of doing this is always just to create interesting conversations and ones that I hope people enjoy. So. If I pissed you off, I'm sorry. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, thank you. So Spotify CEO says there will be measures to address misinformation as well as advisories before COVID discussions. But he also thinks it's important not to be a content content censor. So again, where is the line? And and is it censorship when the information is potentially harmful? to people. Is that when when you know that, what do you do? How do you you know, how do you balance well, the it? The company out? is putting in a disclaimer. That's how they're handling it. Mm -hmm. But I would think that with something that's on audio, you can fast forward through that easily. I wonder I wonder how many people will even hear that. Well, eleven million people. But yeah. he's got eleven million listeners uh, to, he does. Um, to his podcast. Hasn't he been also chastised and corrected and then he just goes back to his craziness again? I mean I don't know that he can be reformed. Well I, I don't love what he said. Um, you know, science certainly does evolve and, and he, you know, disagrees with the fact that he did peddle misinformation. I mean, so many doctors um, have sent letters to Spotify, have sent letters to Joe Rogan 
saying that this information was dangerous, yeah. and not only dangerous, could lead to the death of people. Um, he's advising Aaron Rodgers on the, you know, extolling the virtues of ivermectin and things like that. Right. And so he is peddling misinformation. But I think thank you to Spotify for finally being a little bit more transparent about your policies, mm -hmm. about the consequences to violating those policies, and for the disclaimer. I don't think that's censorship at all. I will say I'm always interested in having good corporate citizens, right? I think they lost something like $2 billion in market value after Neil Young pulled his music. So is this more about they just want to do the right thing? I think they were forced to do the but right thing. But regarding their last year's Spotify reviewed an episode where he advised 21-year-olds not to get vaccinated yeah. and, uh, and, and uh, deemed it to be within the company's content guidelines. Yeah. How is it in their guidelines that's to tell people to not get vaccinated? That's the issue. But you see, I, I think it's entirely discussion is a good one to have and I think the, to me I say thank you not as much to Spotify but to all the people who tuned off Spotify to yeah. Joni Mitchell to uh, Neil Young yeah. who started this because but for that they would not have lost the two billion dollars they would not have done this put these caveats and taken these measures but for that and Joe Rogan you know, I'm so used to seeing these people who lie and misinform and spread conspiracy theories double down yes. instead yes. of apologize. Yeah. That even though he's not my cup of tea, I don't listen to him, I don't agree with him, I found it refreshing yes. to hear the words, I'm but sorry. At least he said, I'm sorry, but, but he, still, he still, I think, uh, wrote the line. So I think he wrote the line on his peddling misinformation. There's a lot of things that he said, so I don't, I don't endorse Joe Rogan. I don't listen to Joe Rogan. It's a three-hour podcast. I don't know who has that kind of time anyway. Uh, but in regards to this specific thing, I thought his apology was refreshing because he said, I can do better. He, he told us about the Spotify disclaimers. He's going to do better to have uh, opposing views right after another. I guess he does his own scheduling, mm -hmm. and he said, I can do better at that. I can do better at preparing. He kind of wings it because he's one of the first podcasts. We're watching. He represents it. He said, this is what I'm going to do. All right. Yeah. We'll see. So there is variation on the panel there, but the, the general sentiment is like, we are where we are. Uh, what Spotify did in reaction to it was to do something akin to what YouTube does where underneath controversial topics, they put a link to information that's considered more authoritative. And we could have a much longer conversation about what is and isn't authoritative information and how you determine that and all that stuff. But look, on the one hand, it's doing something. On the other hand, um, you know, it is largely a dodge from Spotify, but I'll be honest with you guys, I support them either doing nothing or dodging. So there's two separate conversations that are happening at the same time. On the one hand, one conversation is Malone and McCullough and whether or not they're actually spreading misinformation. I think the answer to that is, regardless of what the intentions of Malone and McCullough are, I think the answer to that is, yeah, they're kind of spreading misinformation. Um, so on that front, like, look, I disagree with the guys completely. And there's been some, I've been screaming at mainstream media to have actual experts go claim for claim and debunk all the claims that are bullshit. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of meat there. You should do that hard work. There's some people who are doing it, uh, Dr. Prasad, or, or Prashad, forgive me for not knowing, uh, remembering exactly what his name is right now, but he went on breaking points and went through some of the claims of McCullough and Malone and said, look, here's where they're wrong. There's little parts where they're right, but here's where they're wrong. Uh, there's another guy, I'm forgetting his name right now, but <clears throat> Sam Harris had tweeted a video of some other doctor YouTuber who really went through a lot of the claims that one of those guys made, either Malone or McCullough, and said, look, here's why they're wrong. <laughs> they're simply incorrect with a lot of the stuff they say. So that's the answer. That's the response. One conversation is, 
is this stuff generally bad for the for people to consume because it will give them bad ideas during a, a global raging pandemic? And on that front, I think, you know, people being upset makes sense because I don't agree with those guys. And I think they are spreading stuff that's dangerous. But then the other conversation is totally separate. The other conversation is, what do you do about that? Do you censor? Do you deplatform? Do you prod Spotify to try to kick this guy off? And on that front, I go, hell no. It's the slipperiest, slippery slope of all time. And beyond that, in principle, it's a bad idea. So um, since, as The View was saying this, you also had, Jen Psaki was asked at the White House, White House press spokesperson, um, what she thinks of Spotify's move and what the White House thinks of Spotify's move. And she said, look, it's good, but they need to go further. They need to go further. Well, what exactly do you want them to do? Just say it. Just say it if you believe it, and you do believe it. Just say, I want him to be censored. I want him to be kicked off the platform. I don't want him to be able to talk. Just say it, because that's what you believe. There was also an article in The Hill that detailed, you know, experts, and a bunch of experts said, look, they need to go further. So it's clear what they're calling for. The censorship angle of this is completely and utterly unacceptable. And the bottom line is, look, you're never going to satiate these people unless and until Joe Rogan is kicked off, not just of Spotify, but any alternative platform he would go to, they would want him kicked off of there too. Because that's how these people operate. That's how these people function. You're never going to satiate the sharks. The sharks are going to be sharks. I, the, the point that you should keep coming back to in the censorship conversation is this basic point. The same people that are prodding for censorship and deplatforming are the same people who themselves have been responsible for pushing misinformation. Now, you could, I'm not going to get into their intentions. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's genuine mistakes or whatever. But look, these big networks, uh, the NSA's James Clapper is on, I think it's CNN. Well, James Clapper is a notorious liar. He is an infamous liar. He is known most in his career for lying. He was the head of the NSA, and in a committee, committee hearing, he was asked if the NSA is spying on, you know, uh, Americans, and he said, quote, not wittingly. So, no, we're not collecting metadata on all Americans. That was an amazing lie. And then he was hired by mainstream media. There's a guy by the name of Stephen Hayes. This guy was a chief propagandist for the Iraq War. NBC just hired this guy. He wrote a book saying there's a connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda, and that's why we need to go do the Iraq War. Again, brazenly wrong. Did he believe it? Did he know he was lying? I don't know. I don't care. But the bottom line is that was a lie that he pushed at the top of his lungs that was responsible for getting minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent people killed. He was a chief propagandist for a buildup for an illegal and offensive war. NBC just hired him. Just hired him. That's a lie way worse than anything Joe Rogan has ever done in his entire life. Okay? So these are the people that are prodding for more censorship and deplatforming. All the Russiagate fanatics on MSNBC and CNN who said things that were demonstrably, provably incorrect, and we learned eventually, look, it's all bullshit. They're the ones who are calling for censorship and deplatforming. Joy Ann Reed, who uh, just talked about time-traveling hackers and that people who wrote anti-gay stuff on her, uh, her blog back in the day, well, somehow they hacked the Wayback Machine and, and wrote those blogs. I mean, everybody knew that wasn't true, but there were no consequences, and she was able to stay on the air. Uh, Brian Williams, 
he's, you know, he said, I don't remember the specifics of the story, but something along the lines of when he was covering some war, he was in a helicopter and he was getting shot at. Total lie. Total lie. And he still got a, got a job. These are the people who pushed for every war, every single war in the modern era, based on falsehoods. Uh, the crash of 2008, the people on CNBC, they argued as the economy was imploding and Lehman Brothers went under. They, were out, they had the CEOs of the big financial institutions on their show saying, it's okay, everybody, relax, calm down, and give us more of your money. Keep investing in us. There's no downturn coming. We don't need to get into intentions. Are, are they lying on purpose, or is it just they're just wrong about stuff? I don't know. I don't care. But mainstream media has done way more damage, and nobody even has these casual conversations about, should we ban all of mainstream media? Should we deplatform all of mainstream media? When I go after mainstream media, I'm not saying we should ban it like we're North Korea and I'm Kim Jong-un. I'm just saying they're wrong and let's correct the record. Let's get it right. So, I mean, it's such a lopsided conversation. I mean, even when it comes to COVID misinformation, guys, COVID misinformation. It was Dr. Fauci who said early on, you don't need masks. Well, that's misinformation. You can say, look, we don't know. We're figuring it out in real time. Correct, which is exactly the case for Joe Rogan. Now, I don't agree with him on vaccines, but he sincerely holds the position he holds. So the best thing to do is to try to get more information out there and correct the record and do it in a charismatic and compelling way because that's what changes minds. If you just try to pull them down, then you're going to get not only him, but uh, all of his fans and supporters, a martyr complex where they feel like the only reason they're going after Joe Rogan is because he's telling the truth and they want to suppress the truth. Because again, a guy his size, he's, he's uncancelable. Sure, somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos was effectively cancelable. When they deplatformed him, it kind of worked in the sense that his spread was way less. Even if you successfully get Spotify to ax Joe Rogan, what's he going to do? He's going to run into the arms of another company that's going to be glad to have him, and his audience might drop 10 or 15%, but he's still going to have a way bigger audience than mainstream media. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Look, I, I know Joe personally. Some of you might say, hey, that biases your commentary. Perhaps, but there's another perspective on that too, which is maybe I have even more of an understanding about what the guy's like and how he operates behind the scenes as a result of my personal relationship with him. And look, he's an honest actor. He tells people exactly what he thinks. Now, don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean I agree with everything he does. I've talked about this before, but it's like if, if there's the climate change debate going on and 99% of scientists say one thing and 1% of scientists say the other thing, and you air only the 1% view of like, yeah, climate change is really no big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, that would be misleading by its very nature. Because not only are you biasing the debate, you're totally misframing and misstating the entire debate and giving more credence to a position that is genuinely fringe and wrong. I feel like it's a similar thing going on here with uh, the COVID vaccines and McCullough and Malone. Now, it's a little bit different because he did have on uh, Osterholm at the beginning of the pandemic. He's pro-vaccine. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who he likes, who's pro-vaccine. Um, he's out on a number of Sanjay Gupta. Uh, and he's going to have on another one who's pro-vaccine. But all you can ask is that people try their best every step of the way. And I think that is sincerely what he's doing, even though I've had big disagreements with who he's brought on and how much credence he's given to their perspectives. But it definitely don't deplatform, definitely don't censor. And the people who are calling for it at the top of their lungs are people who are responsible for even more misinformation and worse misinformation. So, look, I'll say it again. 
the entire conversation is absurd. And the way to handle this is imagine if every single time there was a segment or there was commentary from mainstream media or political figures about how action needs to be taken, Spotify needs to go further against Joe Rogan. If every single time that happened, you take that out and you substitute it with, here's a specific claim that Malone made, and here's why that's total bullshit. Here's a specific claim that McCullough made, and here's why we know that's bullshit. And guys, there's a lot of them. I swear, one of them said that you can't get COVID twice. We know that's not true. I'm sure you personally know people who had COVID twice. I do too. You know, um, the list goes on and on. It's not my position to go through all of that stuff and debunk it because I'm also not a scientist or a doctor or an expert in this stuff. I just know the basics of uh, what I see and what I trust. I trust independent studies. I don't trust Pfizer-funded studies or Johnson & Johnson-funded studies. They juice the numbers. They spin it at the, to the maximum extent that they can when it comes to the vaccines. But when you look at a study from France with over 20 million people, and it says the vaccines reduced severe illness, hospitalization, and death by over 90%. The vaccines seem to be good. And any potential downsides are far outweighed by the upsides. So, yeah, I don't agree with those guys. And I think what they do is, is genuinely dangerous. But that, by no stretch of the imagination does that mean censor, ban, deplatform, or whatever. And uh, it's just crazy to me how many people have gone down that rabbit hole, man. Because, again, we're having two separate conversations at the same time. Are these guys saying things that are true? Is the stuff that they're saying misinformation or misleading? That's one conversation. The other conversation is, what do you do about it? What do you actually do about it? And the answer on what you do about it is just have way more good information and correct information, drown out the bad information, but also let's not have ultimate hubris here because, yes, it's true. Every step of the way, whether it was the CDC or the FDA or the World Health Organization or whoever, a lot of people have gotten a lot of stuff wrong, man. A lot of people have gotten a lot of stuff wrong. So there you have it. What's crazy is that The View is taking a more, uh, it's taking a more reasonable position than the White House, than a lot of experts, than most of mainstream media. And that's sad. I will say, I think there's – Crystal brought this up to me. I think this was a good point. One of the reasons why they might be taking this position is because now they're involved in a scandal. Their scandal is that apparently Whoopi Goldberg said on air about the Holocaust that it wasn't motivated by racism. And so then, you know, I think she apologized for it and tried to do like a, a clean up the mess tour and went on uh, Stephen Colbert's show. And she sort of reiterated her claim a little bit while saying like, look, I won't talk about it again. I'm, I'm sorry, even though here's the claim and I still kind of believe it. And um, so now they're under fire. Whoopi Goldberg was just suspended for two weeks. But the, apparently a lot of the other hosts are really pissed off about that and they can't believe that she's been thrown under the bus like this. Um, and so maybe they, because they're personally affected, they now understand and sense, look, we're trying our best. And if we fuck up, uh, should we be axed as a result of it? Should we be fired as a result of it? They don't think it, that should be the case for them. So they're at least being minimally objective in the sense that they're saying that shouldn't really be the case for Joe Rogan either. So, I mean, I guess credit to them on that. But, you know, they have to personally experience some of it before uh, they grasp the concept. And, hey, maybe I'll say something that's controversial here. But, um Whoopi Goldberg's point, if you, if you interpret it charitably, you understand what she's saying. She's not saying the Holocaust wasn't motivated by bigotry or anti-Semitism. She's just saying it's not racism in the sense that it wasn't literally about skin color. That's the only point that she's making. 
Now, I guess you could say, if you want to nitpick it, you could say, well, technically, anti-Semitism or bigotry, that also is racism, so it is motivated by racism. Okay, but if you interpret that, that comment in a charitable light, what she's saying is not outrageous. She's not saying she's pro-Nazi, and she's not saying that it's not motivated by bigotry or anti-Semitism. She just was saying it wasn't actually because of literal skin color. So everybody needs to fucking chill, man, for the love of God. Everybody needs to chill. Stop with all the, you know, I'm offended. Let's do this. I'm offended. Pull them down. I'm offended. This platform should go further. For the love of God, we don't have more important fucking things to talk about, whether it's Ukraine and Russia and being on the brink of World War III, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the fact that the, the market is on the brink of total collapse and we're in a super bubble where there's three massive asset bubbles that could pop at any given time, that we have a Democratic Party that's so unpopular that a guy who's running around literally still saying I should have overthrown the election and done a coup is not a favorite for 2024. We don't have more important things to talk about. A pandemic where uh, we have over 800,000 Americans are dead and what the government can actually do to stop that. Enough about Joe Rogan and spreading misinformation or whatever. Uh, what can Biden actually do? I don't know. Maybe beef up hospital capacity so they don't get overburdened. Invoke the Defense Production Act. Have more of the monoclonal antibodies that actually work and more of the remdesivir. Lift the vaccine patent protection so we can vaccinate the world and not have a new variant in two and a half minutes that's going to give us a whole other wave. There's so much substantive stuff to talk about. And instead, we're arguing over comedian podcasters. I just think it's massive bullshit. Don't let anybody gaslight you guys. Don't let anybody gaslight you. The fact of the matter is there are two separate conversations happening. Malone and McCullough and whether or not they're correct and whether or not what they're doing is misinformation and dangerous. That's one conversation. And then the other conversation is, what do we do about that? Do we censor? Do we deplatform? Is that ever a good idea? And so if you're not separating the two conversations out, then I think you're looking at this in a really sloppy way, bordering on intellectually disingenuous. So anyway, there you have it. A lot of people are going down the rabbit hole in a bad way on this, but... Apparently, even The View has a somewhat more reasonable position than everybody else in the mainstream. Okay, let's continue. You guys are going to love this next one. You guys are going to love this next one, that's for sure. Alex Jones decided to go nuclear on David Pakman. Now, this is fascinating because David Pakman has done like a million segments going after Alex Jones, as I have. Specific comments that he made, you take the video clip, you put it up, you respond to it, you rip it to shreds. He's had to do that at least 20 times. I've done that at least 30 or 40 times because um, he's, he, he's a goldmine. There's so much material that he gives you. But funny enough, I don't know how this got on his radar or whatever. But um, Alex goes after David for something that seems so banal here, and he goes so over the top with his attack. Let's take a look. We have a voicemail number. That number is 219-2-DAVID-P. Here's a voicemail I received with a very practical question about if it came time to leave the country, would you still be able to leave the country? It's a very good question. Hi, David. I just heard you say on the stream that if the United States becomes a full-blown dictatorship by 2024, you will be leaving the country. So I've been thinking about this a lot myself, and is it too late 
if you wait until it's a full-blown dictatorship, will you even be able to leave the country? If you're that concerned about it happening, should you be making plans to leave the okay. war if it goes full-blown dictatorship? Yeah, this is a fair question, which is why... All right, I'm pause. Back in five seconds. I'm not going to ask this. I want you to hear it in its congruency. They admit, and I played the clips from the Davos script that you and all of it, that it's a world ID where you won't be able to travel and leave your house, quote, one half foot, if you don't have the vaccine passport. And I have a whole stack of articles I'll show you about that. And they're saying that, that Republicans are the ones that passed the law to put, put kill switches in all the cars, which is now law. And, I mean, the Republicans are horrible, weak, pathetic, cowardly folks on average. I don't like them. But, but they're not the people in the driver's seat like the Democrats. And imagine, though, this fear porn. Though the Trump supporters are going to have a dictatorship. Are you kidding George Soros has got almost every district attorney and attorney general under his control. And you sit there and act like you're not the establishment. That is a lie on its face. Continue with this garbage. This is a fair question, which is like, if things completely changed overnight in the U.S. and all of a sudden no one was allowed to leave, the plan of saying, I will stay if and until it gets really bad, doesn't work because if it got so bad you wouldn't be allowed to leave. I don't... You know, when we talk about the Canadian political scientists who said the U.S. could be... Yeah, back in five seconds. No, exactly. No, no. So listen, you've got the media, you've got the universities, you've got the military, you've got the banks, you've got Hollywood, and you're... Pu- you're hey, don't worry. You don't need to leave. We're raping America really good. we got drag queen story time going on, okay? we got devaluation of the dollar. we got Cloward Pivot. We're gutting this bitch. That could be a dictatorship by 2030 or whatever else the case may be. I believe that it would be a continued slow slide in that direction, and I am counting on the, the More projection that's what doing that I would have time to get out if such a time came. <laughs> now, would I, if it's so slow that the frog doesn't realize it's getting burned, right? Total projection. Would I know when it's time to leave? These are all fair questions, but I don't think it would be like an overnight, no more going So they're doing this to us. Classical corporate takeover, censorship, debanking, arrest, tyranny, classic. And then he's talking about them as victims. Talk about, talk about a fantasy. Talk about a simulation. He said his own, but he knows it's not a simulation. He loves this for his little groveling followers that actually drink this Kool-Aid. Let's continue. Uh, but maybe some people in the audience uh, have a different perspective. If I was telling my children who not to be, it's that guy. I mean, and he's a disgrace. And I don't say that like, God, I feel good about myself. No, he makes me feel pathetic. Look at those eyes, man. That, that's, that, that dude is gone. Thanks for going. Thank your lucky stars every day. You're not Dave Packman. Look at that. That is a freaking predator right there. He thinks he's smarter than you. He thinks he's better than you. He's going to beat you, he thinks. No, Joe Rogan and uh, Bill Maher, they're all smarter than you, big man. Because, you know, they've, they've uh, played both sides, but now they know who's going to win. You're on the wrong side of history. And I'm so sorry for what's going to happen to you by your own decisions. Well, he's an archetype. A sample out of the fetid latrine or cesspool that is the system. You know the people that have the underground bases call up people like Pac-Man? No. Pac-Man never talked to the new war. Pac-Man never got tried to get hired by the Fisker group. Because Pac-Man's a loser. He's a sellout. He's not a real man. He's not a knight at the round table. He didn't actually have a real discussion with the power structure he worships. See, I said no to the evil power structure. Not because I was a hero, but because I had God. I had a connection to the infinite. I knew this was a failure. This was not good. I didn't join with God and justice because I was a good person. I did it because I had discernment and wanted to be with God. Mr. Pac-Man is not with God. 
That got weirdly religious at the end there. That got weirdly religious. Alex Jones is with God, and Pac-Man, as he calls him, is not with God. Look, maybe I'm reading between the lines. Maybe I'm uh, judging a little too harshly. But does that sound like a little bit of sprinkle of anti-Semitism right there at the end? Because we've, we've heard him do it before. We've heard Alex Jones do it before, talking about Brian Stelter, who I also despise, by the way, but uh, doing the old blood libel thing with Brian Stelter. And he, he brings up the eyes thing. Like, you sprinkling in a touch of anti-Semitism there, dog? What are you doing? What are you doing? And what does that even mean, I'm with God and you're not with God? How are you with God? That sounds more like paranoid schizophrenia to me. If you're, what, you think you literally hear the voice of a magical sky wizard and you want people to take you seriously as if you're spitting facts on the air? Give me a break. So let's go through some of the stuff he said there. I love that. So he's melting down because David Pakman says, he's asked a question by an audience member like, hey, what do you do? Do you have plans to leave if the U.S. becomes a dictatorship? And, and how does that work? And David Pakman's like, hey, listen, I don't know. I, we might be the frog in boiling water. And by the time we know it's a dictatorship, it might be too late to leave. And then I'm screwed. So uh, maybe I leave, maybe I won't. But I'm banking on, uh, you know, having enough time if we start going down that path, so on and so forth. And Alex Jones flips out over that. But Alex Jones' whole shtick is that we're either currently living in a dictatorship or we will eventually live in a dictatorship. So this is, in a weird roundabout way, even though the details are totally different, this is David Pakman agreeing with your general sentiment. You think a terrible dictatorship is coming, and, and David Pakman thinks, hey, maybe it's coming, and if so, maybe I should have plans to leave the country. Why would you flip out over something that you nominally agree with? Well, we know the answer. The answer is because the implication from David Pakman is if a dictatorship comes, it's going to be ushered in under a Republican administration, and Alex Jones is pro-Republican, so he's triggered by that, which is kind of hilarious because Alex Jones, every time he's, he's you know, people call him out and act, call him a right-winger, what does he say? He always does the thing where, look, under the Bush administration, I went after Bush nonstop. I'm not a, a Republican. I'm, you know, I was the one who was opposed to the Iraq war. I was the one who was opposed to the you know, the Patriot Act and, and the torture and all that stuff under the Bush administration, so you can't accuse me of being partisan. Yeah, but that was back then, and since then, you had gone all in for Donald Trump, who, by the way, continued the torture and continued the wars and continued a lot of the Bush policies. In many ways, he was just an extension of the George W. Bush presidency, but you were cucked by him for a long time. Now, recently he turned on him, but the reason he turned on him was the dumbest reason of all, because Trump said some pro-vaccine shit, and Alex Jones thinks that that's part of the, you know, Illuminati globalist Bilderberg conspiracy or whatever. But look, again, if you're not partisan, Alex, like you say you're not, well, then why would you get mad when David Pakman is just casually discussing, well, what if we become a dictatorship and it's ushered in under Republicans? If anything, you should be like, right, I hate the Democrats and the Republicans, so maybe it will come in under the Republicans. So I kind of agree. And by the way, the idea that it's crazy to have that conversation. I mean, first of all, we already live in a kleptocracy and an oligarchy. That's the open conspiracy that Alex Jones doesn't talk about. He raises the conspiracy one more level. But the, consp the real conspiracy is out in the open. Corporations run the government. Billionaires run the government. The donor class runs the government. So that's the open conspiracy. It's campaign contributions and politicians not representing the will of the American people. Trump literally tried to steal the election. That's not conjecture. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. There's more and more stories that come out every day, too, about it. There were now we know there was more than one memo drafted about seizing voting machines and trying to overturn the election and, call, uh, and um, ushering in martial law. 
Trump just released a statement the other day attacking Mike Pence because Mike Pence didn't try to single-handedly overturn the election results. So why is it crazy to have this conversation? It's a reasonable conversation. Of course it's a reasonable conversation. There were over 60 court cases. Donald Trump lost every one except like one, and the one that he won was over some procedural nonsense that doesn't change the outcome. We had the Arizona election audit. And not only did Biden win, he won by more votes than everybody originally thought. So the conversation is not insane. He, Alex Jones is just triggered that uh, Pacman thinks, hey, if we're going to get a dictatorship, it's going to come under Republicans. I love when Alex brings up drag queen story time. What are you talking about? I'll tell you what it is. It's Alex Jones is, he just lumps everybody who's left of center by any stretch of the imagination into the, you have to be insanely woke category. And so he drags in drag queen story time into the conversation. By the way, David Pakman is a critic of wokeness. You know, he's talked about that openly. So what are you, like, what are you doing? It's, and it, when he says, um, Joe Rogan and Bill Maher are smarter than you, big man, why are you randomly giving credit to Joe Rogan and Bill Maher? By the way, those two guys definitely don't agree with Alex Jones on everything. In fact, they probably have way more disagreement than agreement. But again, it's just that Bill Maher recently did a new rule segment where he goes after the left and he attacks them for being crazy and too woke. And Joe Rogan has always been anti-woke. So in, in the mind of Alex Jones, it's like, if you are sufficiently anti-woke, then you're one of the good guys. What a low bar to be part of like this fight against the globalists and the Illuminati. Like, I think pink hair college kids are stupid. Welcome to the club. It's just so dumb. It's so dumb. Uh, and then, of course, we get the best um, quotes of all when Alex Jones says, quote, he makes me feel pathetic. Well, as David Pakman said in response to that, that might be something that you want to flesh out with a psychotherapist. You should be in some deep psychiatry or psychology uh, sessions if that's, if that's what happens when you watch David Pakman. He makes you feel pathetic? He's not saying Pakman is pathetic. He's saying Pakman makes me feel pathetic. Okay, and then, quote, look at those eyes. That dude is gone. He calls him a loser. He calls him a predator. Um, And the idea, when Alex Jones accuses somebody else of being a sellout, it's hilarious because Alex Jones literally begged for money from big donors when he lost his uh, Sandy Hook cases. So all we needed to stay afloat. We went through his finances on the show recently. There was a, a big article about that, and we broke it down for you. Homeboy is straight up swimming in a pool of cash, Alex Jones is. And most of the stuff, you know, he, he makes money through his InfoWars store where he sells. He's got, you know, the T-shirts or whatever, the merch. I don't know if it's mugs or he's got clothing stuff that says, let's go Brandon on her or whatever. But then he also has total scam supplements that are proven scams. And so if anything, if Alex Jones is going to go down for anything, it's not even the Sandy Hook thing in the long run. It would be uh, just fraud scam supplements that he's selling. So we'll see if that happens. But <laughs> what this tells me is, Alex Jones is liable any day to, uh, to find a video of me talking about something innocuous and come after me. But what he probably won't do is take a specific segment where I'm going after him for something and then respond to that. Because, again, Pacman did about 1,000 segments going after uh, Alex Jones more generally on specific things he said. Somehow that was off Alex Jones' radar or he saw it but didn't respond. This is the thing that he chooses to flip out over. I mean – Honestly, kind of hilarious. All right, next.
So California had a single-payer health care bill um, that was supposed to be up for a vote, and there were a lot of great organizers on the ground doing incredibly hard work to get it to this point. And if you guys remember, last, last legislative session, there was a guy by the name of Anthony Rendon. Anthony Rendon? Something Rendon. I think it's Anthony, but I could be mistaken. And this guy um, basically single-handedly blocked single-payer coming to California because Democrats have a supermajority in California. Well, now we're thinking, hey, is this time going to be different? The organizer did incredibly hard work. It was able to get through, I think, the Senate in California. Um, and then it comes up in the other body. Here I'm going to let uh, Crystal Ball from Breaking Points go ahead and lay out what ended up happening. California is effectively a one-party state. Democrats hold the governor's mansion. They hold 31 out of 46 out of seats, and they hold 56 out of 80 assembly seats. Whatever Democrats want in California, they can accomplish. And so it's this great interest that I've watched as many of those elected Democrats try to avoid doing something that they pretended to support, and which, by the way, their constituents overwhelmingly want, and that would be establishing a single-payer health care system in that state. So here is the very latest, and this news was breaking late last night. Unions, activists, and progressive politicians have been trying to pass single-payer health care for decades in California. The most recent attempt was back in 2017. That effort gained a lot of steam following Bernie's first presidential campaign. In fact, single-payer actually passed through the Senate in that state. But the health insurers, they had a key ally, an assembly speaker, Anthony Rendon. They flooded his campaign coffers, along with the coffers of the Democratic Party writ large, with millions in a campaign cash. And lo and behold, Speaker Rendon decided to not even bring single payer to the floor for a vote. No one would have to take a tough vote to show whether they sided with the people or with the corrupt corporate insurers. And the issue was very effectively killed for that moment. But the fight wasn't over. Single payer advocates got another shot with then candidate Gavin Newsom, who backed the effort in his successful run for governor. Newsom recognized that the issue was popular with voters, and he was jockeying for the endorsement of an influential nurses' union. But during that campaign, Newsom was totally unequivocal. He even chided other politicians for their fake support of universal health care. He tweeted, I'm tired of politicians saying they support single-payer because it's too soon, too expensive, or someone else's problem. So here we are in 2022 after a pandemic that saw economic and health devastation, with California voters keenly interested in breaking away from this rapacious for-profit model that has had such devastating consequences for their state and for the country. And Newsom, well, he's no longer a candidate for office, he's governor, he's leader of the California Democratic Party. No one has more power over what that party backs and prioritizes and what ultimately happens in the state. So last week, a bill that would establish something called CalCare, single-payer, passed out of committee, sending it for a vote to the full state assembly. Newsom must be ecstatic, right? Delighted that a key campaign promise is one step closer to fruition. Thrilled politically that he can deliver on a popular issue among California voters. Yeah, not so much. Whereas before, Newsom was tired of politicians making excuses for not backing single-payer. Now he is one of those politicians making excuses for not backing single-payer. When asked about this bill, he said, quote, I have not had the opportunity to review that plan, and no one has presented it to me. I think that the ideal system is a single-payer system. I've been consistent with that for well over a decade. The difference here is when you're in a position of responsibility, you've got to apply, you've got to manifest the ideal. This is hard work. It's one thing to say, it's another to do. Indeed, it is one thing to say and another to do. I will give you that one. And I'll give you one guess what happened between campaign Newsom throwing down for single payer and Governor Newsom getting all weak need. Well, he got a whole raft of cash. Our partners over at the Daily Poster had this report. Health insurer Blue Shield of California has been forking over multi-million dollar donations to Newsom to his pet causes and to the California Democratic Party. We're talking 99,000 direction Newsom's campaigns, $2.7 million to the California Dems. That includes a $1 million gift to the state party just last summer. That was back when Newsom was fighting back a recall effort. 100 k to Newsom's inaugural, $20 million to a Newsom-backed homeless housing project. 
Now, this money has already reached great rewards for this insurer. We previously covered here how Newsom awarded Blue Shield a $15 million no-bid contract for vaccine distribution in spite of the fact they had absolutely no relevant expertise in setting up vaccination sites or in administering vaccines. But Blue Shield, they're not the only ones who have been funneling cash to Newsom and the Dems in hopes that they will kill single-payer. Anthem, United Health, they also have ponied up significant contributions. They literally just ran out the clock. They didn't even bring the bill up for a vote. They just ran out the clock, and then they'll shrug and be like, "No." well, first of all, nobody's even going to ask them. The media's not even going to ask them, hey, what went down with that single-payer bill that was supposed to pass? The polls on it are overwhelming. Like 86% of Democrats in California want it. I think 60% of the state wants it. They just ran out the clock. Didn't pass it. And Gavin Newsom was out there making direct affirmative arguments for Medicare for All. And then now when he actually has something, to, something he could do about it, he's like, Medicare for All? We don't know Medicare for All. What do you mean Medicare for All? I don't even know what you're talking about. New phone, who did? You look at this and you understand exactly why. People are turned off by politics and politicians, and many people just check out. They just check out, and they have this general worldview of like, look, nobody's fighting for me. Nobody gives a fuck about me, so why should I even get involved in the system? Why should I partake? Why should I waste my time? If every single time that you fight and try to get something done and invest your own effort and your own money, not only do they not help you they straight up stab you in the back and twist the knife i mean in some ways it's even more odious than the republicans here because the republicans are like i don't want to do that policy and they're upfront about it but in california we're like yes we're going to do this we love this we support this and then they could have and they didn't and they didn't and we know exactly how and why this happened see that's the part where i think some people lose the plot where your general you know, more apolitical type observer looks at it and goes, I don't know, they're just bad people. It's not that they're just bad people. We have terrible incentives in the system. And as Crystal laid out there, great reporting from David Sirota, uh, it was all because of the campaign contributions. Literally, the whole reason was the campaign contributions. That's the only reason why they did what they did. Which means that there's two possible answers that you, what you could do to fix this. Number one is, You have to get the money out of the system. If you get the private money out of the system, then it's much more likely the politicians will represent the voters because their campaigns are funded by the voters. That's what a clean elections uh, system is. That's what a publicly financed election system is. So that's one answer. Get the money out of the system. That's obviously difficult because the Supreme Court basically said uh, it's a free speech right in order for the billionaires and corporations to buy elections and politicians. Total garbage argument, but that's the interpretation that they're going with. But the other thing you could do, which, uh, you know, would make it a lot more, which is like a a workaround from the corruption, is I've talked about this a thousand times, do a a national direct ballot initiative approach. And in this case, California already has the direct ballot initiatives. It should just be, they should get to work on putting it on the ballot so that, in other words, the people will vote on whether or not to have a single-payer system. And if the people vote on it, it is much more likely it's going to pass, because even though there will be a massive propaganda effort uh, from the health insurance companies, uh, we've seen like 80% of the time, roughly, 
when an issue is brought up for the people to vote directly on, regardless of what state it's in, people seem to go the right way. Sometimes the propaganda is too thick and there's too much lying and it somehow they, the bad side ends up eking out a victory. But look, even Florida in the 2020 election, that state went to Donald Trump by a pretty sizable margin, but 60% of the voters still voted to raise the minimum wage. So what does that tell you? When you give people a direct issue to vote on, generally they do the right thing. So that's the answer here. The fight, I guess, is not to do it through the legislature. The fight is to do it through direct ballot initiative. But either way, look, it's totally unacceptable and it's grotesque. And these people deserve all the hate that they're about to get from their constituents. I mean, they're, I don't know if you live in California. If you do live in California, I would call Newsom's office. I'd call uh, whatever other politicians were involved in this at the state level, and I would ream them. I would ream them. And I, everybody should do all hands on deck, everything they can to kick these people out. Uh, so just, just so everybody understands, because this is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. The U.S. spends 17% of our GDP on health care, and we get worse outcomes than countries that spend about 11% of their GDP on health care. Think about that. Think about it. We spend way more than any other country, and we get worse health outcomes, and we don't even cover everybody. There was a report recently, Medicare for All would have prevented 33% of COVID deaths in the United States, according to a, a report from Public Citizen. So one of the reasons why we had uh, worse COVID death numbers than other developed countries is because of what's called uninsurance, people who don't have health insurance. So they don't end up going to get treatment. They sort of hold back because they're like, I don't know if I'll be able to afford the bill. And so they stay home and some of those people died. So about 330,000 lives could have been saved if we had a Medicare for all system just during the pandemic, never mind the roughly 45,000 every normal year. 30 million Americans are uninsured. About 80 million Americans are underinsured. There was a study from The Lancet that found Americans owe $140 billion in medical bills, which means roughly one in five people in the U.S. have medical debt in collections. And that doesn't even include all the medical debt because a lot of the debt is not in collections yet. Probably a majority of it is not in collections yet. So we're drowning in medical debt. It's one of the top causes of bankruptcy. It might be the top cause of bankruptcy in this country. And we know Medicare for All would save $5 trillion over a 10-year period. $5 trillion. Why? Because you're getting rid of that mafia middleman. There's no purpose to the for-profit health insurance companies. None at all. That Commonwealth Fund study found we're ranked 11th out of 11 of healthcare systems in the developed world. Dead last in virtually every category. We're at the bottom. So we know, now I'm talking nationally here, this conversation is really about California, but nationally I just gave you the statistics. We know this is the answer. Everybody knows this is the answer. The people want this. Why don't we get it? Simply put, because of the corruption. Because these politicians don't represent you, and ultimately they end up being brazen liars about what their platform is. And then you cannot look at that situation and then blame the people in any way, shape, or form. You cannot look at that situation and say the people are anything other than victims of a government that has stabbed them in the back repeatedly. It's pathetic. I said it before, I'll say it again. We know the answers. The answers are either to get the money out of the system so that they'll actually represent us or do a work around directly around the corruption and do direct ballot initiatives on these important issues. So for those um, you know, single-payer advocates, 
in California. Thank you so much for your hard work. You guys are heroes. It's not your fault that this didn't get through. You ran up against a brick wall of corruption. Gavin Newsom is a piece of shit who deserves to be in prison for what he did here, as is every other politician. On the next go, do it through a direct ballot. Because that's how we got marijuana in a lot of states. That's how we got $15 minimum wage in a lot of states. That seems to be the only way in which we have positive change in the modern era, because the system is so immensely corrupt that popular will seems to have no effect on, on legislation if you go through the legislature. So it's the only way, man. And you can thank the Supreme Court for giving us this kind of a system too, by the way, because they're the ones who decided in a number of cases from the late 1970s until today, there's been four or five cases, whether it's McCutcheon or um, Citizens United or Buckley versus Vallejo or First National Bank of Boston versus Bilotti. There's a number of Supreme Court cases where they effectively rule corruption is totally legal, bribery is totally legal. It is what it, that's why we are where we are right now. So we know what the problem is. We know what the solutions are. We know how hard of an uphill fight it is. The most direct way to get the proper policy implemented here is through those direct ballot initiatives. But I have nothing but an un, unending... I got to watch myself here, not, not go too over the top. I have nothing but a burning, passionate hatred for every single Democrat here that lied and then stabbed the people of California in the back. Because this could have been a domino effect too. If you have a state as big as California that did implement a single-payer Medicare for All system, then that would have been something that led the way and let other states know this is possible. You can do this. And that would have helped end our health care nightmare in the country. It really would have. Because clearly at the federal level, it's an even harder task to pass Medicare for all. But if you start with one state and then you get another state that says, we're going to give it a go too, that could have been a domino effect. It could have been like marijuana, which is still, you know, spreading through the states. I think it is coming, guys. It is coming. But the strategy needs to be right, and the strategy was through the direct ballot. So there you have it. Credit to Crystal Ball there for a wonderful breakdown, just absolutely eviscerating the smug slimy, sleazy, corrupt prick that is Gavin Newsom. All right, let's continue. Rachel Maddow, let's talk about her. Ladies and gentlemen, the day has come. Rachel Maddow is going, going gonzo from her daily... MSNBC show. Let me throw up this article here. Rachel Maddow confirms MSNBC hiatus hints at more absences. Okay, so here are the specifics. She's taking a two-month break. Um, she's going to work on a movie with Ben Stiller where she's a director. It's some, some uh, political movie. She's apparently going to be back for big events like Biden's State of the Union. I think that's on March 1st. She earns $30 million per year in her current deal with MSNBC. And that deal runs all the way through 2024. But apparently the deal permits Maddow to dial back her nightly hosting duties. And uh, she's also going to do something with a podcast, pursue some podcast or whatever. I mean, that's, it really does annoy me, whether it's uh, Megan and Harry, 
who decided we're going to do a podcast, and then they literally did one, even though they got paid tens of millions of dollars for it. Um, or Rachel Maddow, or when Obama did a podcast with Bruce Springsteen, which was fucking terrible. Was it Bruce Springsteen? I think it was Bruce Springsteen. For the love of God, can the elites leave the people anything? Like, this was the realm of the people, whether it's YouTube or podcasts. Like, that's where you go if you're, you know, some college dropout with a five o'clock shadow who's got opinions on stuff, uh, but you're actually kind of charismatic, and you turn the microphone on, and you build an audience, and it's lovely and you end up becoming a, a top podcaster as a result of it. Like, that was, this is the realm of the people. But now the elites are trying to get in on the fun. And the elites are trying to, you know, I'm sure that all these systems are going to be biased in favor of them too, just like what happened on YouTube. Redirect now to the authoritative sources, MSNBC and CNN. Fuck all the, you know, independent new media outlets. You guys have had your day. You're done now. Uh, it's a similar thing with this. So, Matt Al, for the love of God, just leave the podcast to the podcasters, please. Leave it to us new media folks to do the new media stuff. It's so annoying. Um, so MSNBC is shaking stuff up now. So Stephanie Rule is going to replace Brian Williams as host of MSNBC's late, late Night News Hour. And get this. I love this change. Morning Joe is going to get an extra hour. Morning Joe is already on for three hours. They're going to add a fourth hour. I got a million negative things to say about Maddow, but the fact of the matter is she was the highest rated on MSNBC, and I think it's highest rated by far. And so if she's gone, she's probably going to take a lot of her audience with her. And so MSNBC, yet again, is in dire straits. Because you know what? They don't have a philosophy. They don't have an ideology. The only driving force for them is to defend the Democratic Party and the establishment. And I got news for you. With a Democratic Party at like 32% approval rating or 35% approval rating or whatever it is, don't have too many supporters now, do you? And also, there's also the general problem that, you know, um, Republicans on average are older. Older people tend to watch TV. Uh, Democrats on average are younger. They tend to not be as plugged into TV in particular. And so they have all these issues, all these, you know, fundamental problems with their business model. And bottom line is, I think they're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic here. And I don't know what direction they're going to go in, but I can guarantee you they're not going to go into the one direction that could make them genuinely interesting and give them good ratings. I love how CNN and MSNBC both just conceded the battle to Fox News, thinking, well, Fox News is always going to be number one. Imagine thinking like that. Imagine thinking like that. You have like a captive audience, and you still don't think you can compete with them. Well, you can't compete with them because your philosophy sucks. Fox News is just the Republican Party propaganda network, but they super serve their audience. Look, there is a giant untapped audience out there, which is people who are actually ideological and want to improve the country. So if you have people who genuinely care about the substantive issues and they're charismatic and interesting, that's how you get a big audience. But they're never going to go down that path. Why? Because of the incentive structure. Because then... You'll upset the advertisers, and the advertiser dollars will dry up or, or be reduced massively. And the primary thing in their mind is to keep those advertiser dollars flowing. That's all they care about. So you're not going to have a fire breather on there who's screaming for Medicare for All and a $15 minimum wage and the PRO Act and ending the wars and UBI and all that stuff. It's never going to happen, even though that's the way out. Honesty, authenticity, uh, fighting for the people, giving facts and information – Charisma, never going to do it. Instead, they have 
the Russiagate fanatic conspiracy theorist who was number one, incredibly hyperbolic and sensationalist and partisan hack, but she was number one, and now she's slowly but surely stepping down, and so MSNBC will continue to be lost in the wilderness for an extended period of time. Um, sayonara, Maddow. Uh, there was a time when she was half decent. I don't know if you guys remember, but I remember during the Obama years, there was a time where she called out Obama for increasing the uh, Afghanistan war, for doing the troop surge. There was a time when she was more honest and more committed to serious issues. And then that all went away. And she became, funny enough, uh, left-wing Glenn Beck. Not left-wing, because she's not left-wing. Democratic hack Glenn Beck. That's what she became. Democratic hack Glenn Beck. And funny enough, she had, done, she had said in a number of interviews previously that she thinks Glenn Beck is a phenomenal broadcaster in the sense that he's very entertaining. And so she looked at him as sort of like a model. Well, you did the model to a T because you went all in on Russiagate conspiracy theory garbage. And that is how she gained her audience. Just like Glenn Beck gained that audience with the chalkboard conspiracy theories and uh, the Marxism and Van Jones and, you know, the Agenda 21 is the thing that they used to call it. Now they call it the Great Reset. Congratulations. You did the thing that uh, you wanted to do. Just so happened to be absolutely terrible for the country. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in this topic more broadly, I suggest reading Matt Taibbi's book, Hate, Inc., because that's a good uh, modern-day breakdown of the media. You've got to read the classic, got to read Manufacturing Consent, but also read Hate, Inc. But um, goodbye, Rachel Maddow. You certainly won't be missed from me, that's for sure. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, Republicans admit they're going to run on zero policy. Awesome. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back, Cotter. All right, let's continue. Uh, let's jump right into Republicans' strategy going into the next election. You're going to get a kick out of this one. <clears throat> There's a fascinating article that I want to share with you here because it talks about the comments Republicans have made, elected Republicans, about what their strategy is going into the midterm. So take a look. McConnell wants a policy free midterm campaign. Others in the GOP are less sure. When former President Donald Trump ran for re-election in 2020, the party didn't release a platform laying out Republican priorities. Trump was the platform. Huh. It's the minimum that voters often expect of congressional candidates. Spell out what it is they would do if elected. Yet inside the Republican Party, key leaders are split on whether to roll out any sort of governing agenda ahead of the midterm elections in November. With President Joe Biden's approval rating tumbling, one GOP faction headed by Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is betting that skewering the Democrats is all that's needed to wrest control of the Senate. Another, led by House GOP chief Kevin McCarthy, is drawing up positions meant to persuade Americans that voting Republicans might improve their lives. Beneath the dueling approach to the midterms lies a more basic question about the party's direction. Donald Trump first ran for office promising a sharp break from party orthodoxy. He questioned the merits of free trade and called for withdrawing U.S. troops from prolonged Middle East wars. As his presidency wound down, the party devolved into more of a a vehicle for Trump to air grievances and punish foes. A candidate eager for Trump's endorsement in the GOP primaries now stands a better chance by showing fealty to him rather than committing to a set of principles. Yeah, so this goes back to Chris Hedges' comment that you think of Trump's hardcore supporters, the people that are still with him to this day, um, think of them more as like a cult than any sort of political party. Because it's true. That's sort of how they operate. So McConnell, this is what they say in the article. They go on to say, quote, McConnell is opaque when it comes to his caucus's priority should it retake the majority. Here's how McConnell responded when he was asked directly, what policies do you want to run on? Quote, that's a very good question, and I'll let you know when we take it back. This midterm election will be a report card on the performance of this entire Democratic government, the President, the House, and the Senate. Wow. So John Thune, a senator from South Dakota, Republican, uh, he echoed that sentiment. He said, quote, you don't want to make yourself the issue. I think right now they, the Democrats, are a target-rich environment. They're just giving us a lot of stuff to shoot at. So they, they mentioned how McCarthy's like, come on, you guys are crazy. We've got to have an agenda. Listen to this, again, from the article. Taking a different tact, McCarthy is relying on seven House task forces and committees to develop a platform by summer that Republican candidates can present to voters. Preparing for the next pandemic, combating threats posed by China, and defending against cyber attacks. What? So nothing about the economy, nothing about health care, nothing about infrastructure or ending wars. It's literally, that's the saddest plank I've ever heard in my life. Preparing for the next pandemic is important, but it was Trump who gutted one of the original pandemic preparedness agencies. So, okay, you want to, I'll give you that one. That's good, but that's not a, a platform in and of itself that you can run on for an election. Preparing for the next pandemic, combating threats posed by China, 
and defending against cyber attacks? Yeah, no. So, ready? Here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. I'm of the belief that for Democrats to win, they absolutely need to run on policy and they need to be aggressive about it. So for Democrats, that's the winning strategy. Given where we are right now and how Democrats are not running on policy and they're, they haven't really delivered for the American people, the last amazing thing Biden did was the $1,400 checks, and even that was down from when he said it was gonna, should be 2000 So Biden's not delivering. The Democrats aren't delivering. They're not running on anything. And they're currently getting all the blame because they hold the House, the Senate, and the presidency. I actually think Mitch McConnell's right. For the Republicans to win, they don't, need, they don't need to do anything. They don't need to say anything. McConnell says, look, we'll just keep attacking the Democrats. You don't even need to do that. You just got to sit there and say nothing, and you win. And so what's their, their current strategy is attack the Democrats. But beyond that, it's also like just lean into culture war shit, whatever the culture war shit may be for the day. Oh, they want to call it potato head instead of Mr. Potato Head. Isn't that insane? Isn't that crazy? Let's talk about this for 47 years. You know, uh, we've had a number of those stupid culture war battles. That, oh, my God, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss's family said that they don't want to sell the old books that had, like, questionable racial stereotypes types in there. So now we're going to blame the entire Democratic Party and wokeness for the thing that Dr. Seuss's family wanted to do. But, like, the point is, that's all a diversion, that's all a deflection, because Republicans don't have an agenda for the American people either. But they don't even need to do anything. They don't need to talk culture war. They don't need to talk anything at all. So McConnell's actually right. But understand, this also is just a total mask-off moment where, like, he doesn't believe in anything. The only thing that he's truly committed to as a politician is super-serving his donors. That is Mitch McConnell's entire career in a nutshell. How do I super-serve the corporate class? How do I super-serve my donors. And so he understands, look, that's not popular. I'm never going to win an election going out there and saying, let's do more tax cuts for the rich. Let's do more tax cuts for corporations. Let's give more subsidies to Wall Street and the banks. He's never going to win an election saying that stuff. So he just shuts up about it. He doesn't bring it up. And now we just have to sit there quietly and run out the clock and the Republicans are going to win. But it, it, I just need everybody to understand how loathsome these people are, though. Because, I mean, they're at the point they don't even pretend anymore. I do feel like there's been a big transition from when I was a kid. They had to pretend. Politicians had to pretend. They had to try to be clever to make an argument to be like, here's how I'm going to look out for you. Now, there's, they don't even bother. Uh, they bring up in this article, like Newt Gingrich. Remember in 1994, I believe, was the Newt Gingrich wave? And they had, I think it was called the Contract with America or something. And so the Republicans at that time, their big thing that they were running on was like tax cuts. But they framed it as, oh, it'll be tax cuts for, for you, for working class Americans, which is a more potent argument than you know, saying for the wealthy. But they always sort of do that dodge and pretend like it's for the working class, even though it rarely, if ever, is. But their argument was like that, plus we're tough on crime. There's maybe like one other thing they sprinkled in there. But it was, it was a coherent philosophy that they put out there, and they won. They had a big wave. Here, we're at, now, we're at the point now in American politics where the best-case scenario for Republicans is that they just shut up, and then they'll win in a landslide, a historic landslide. Because, again, it's, 
I mean, Biden has been so underwhelming and has delivered so poorly, they just have to sit there and everybody will just naturally blame the party that's in power. And then you get the benefit of the, the pendulum swing. But that just goes to show you how broken our system is, how disgusting our system is. Because when the Republicans take over, they're going to fuck shit up even more. And they're going to, uh, you know, probably pass a whole new round of tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations. Just go back to their standard playbook. And um, then the pendulum will swing back to the Democrats. And you get this vicious cycle. But the cycle can be broken only if you get Democrats who embrace FDR's vision bring back a New Deal era, toss out all the big money, only uh, raise money through small-dollar donors, uh, have a populist economic agenda and be unapologetic about it, because then you'd see some real big numbers. You wouldn't get these you know, slim majorities on one side or the other. You could get back to what FDR had. I mean, he won the presidency four times in a row. There was a time when Democrats held 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate, respectively, while FDR was in there. We could have that. But you need to actually believe in something and run on something and have a vision that Americans agree with. Um, but it just goes to show you how low our politics are right now, that this is openly McConnell's like, let's just not have any policy. For Democrats to win, they need to run on policy. For Republicans to win, like right now, they just need to shut the fuck up. Because if they talk about policy, economic policy, foreign policy, people will be like, oh, you're actually worse than I thought. So just say nothing or keep playing your stupid culture war games, which, look, like it or not, it ends up being kind of effective for them. I mean, I think they're charlatans and they're frauds and they're con men and all that stuff. But when they do the culture war game, they eat the, Repu- they eat the Democrats' lunch, you know? So I think the Yunkin race was uh, a sign of things to come. Buckle up. It's going to get ugly. George Soros is a billionaire mega donor, and he's the, uh, you know, the target of a lot of right-wing conspiracy theories. Now, just because there are anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that are against him, and there are, doesn't mean that he doesn't have a massively negative influence in our politics as a billionaire mega donor, because he does have that. So my point is, don't play the stupid partisan hack games here, where it's like, because you criticize George Soros, like, you're with the Republicans or you're anti-Semitic or whatever. That's garbage. That's total garbage. I'm against George Soros' money in politics, and I'm against the Koch brothers' money in politics. So I guess there's one Koch left, right? I don't know. One of them died, I think. Anyway, uh, so let's take a look at this article here from Politico. Soros pours $125 million into Super PAC ahead of midterms. The mammoth donation is fueling investment in Democratic political groups and races from Senate to Secretary of State around the country. $125 million. So the group is ironically called Democracy Pack. You can't functionally participate in kleptocracy or oligarchy and then call the pack Democracy Pack. That makes no sense. <laughs> that makes no sense. You should call it Oligarchy Pack or Kleptocracy Pack. Um, now, this has served as George Soros's campaign spending vehicle since 2019. He already channeled more than $80 million to other Democratic groups and candidates during the 2020 election cycle. Um, this investment, nine-figure investment from Soros, 
is um, puts him in, I think, the top 10 of political contributors. Very few people obviously spend that much money on this kind of stuff. And their main causes, according to them, Soros and his son, who's going to run this, they want to support, quote, pro-democracy causes and candidates regardless of political party. Huh? They're invested in, quote, strengthening the infrastructure of American democracy, voting rights, and civic participation, civil rights and liberties, and the rule of law. And then they go on to cite, this is the main thing, January 6th is their big issue. You know what this tells me? I think they're also going to try to support, like, Kinzinger and Cheney, Liz Cheney. Because they say, look, uh, they're trying to make clear this isn't partisan. So we're going to go for people who fit our grand scheme ideal here, which is January 6th bad. And by the way, agree, January 6th really bad. But is that enough? Is that enough? As long as you're against January 6th and you're good? Well, Liz Cheney has a voting record that's like probably over 90% with Donald Trump and with the far right. Because she's against January 6th, that means what? You're going to give her some of this money? Or Kinziger, for example, you're going to give him some of this money? Look, the whole point of this story is to show you, look at what's happened. Like, our politicians are so useless and so corrupt that it doesn't even occur to them, hey, maybe a better way to do this thing is to just raise through small-dollar donations. Maybe um, we should represent the people and only raise funds from the people. In fact, what they do is the polar opposite. They, like, forego support from the people and small-dollar donations because they know they're unpopular and they know nobody likes them. And they run into the arms of a billionaire donor. And the billionaire donor, by the way, just so you know further what his philosophy is, he's already donated millions of dollars to, like, the Democratic leadership pack. So the current guard of the Democratic Party, the current status quo of the Democratic Party, that he looks at that. George Soros looks at that and says, my kind of people. But if that's your kind of people, then you're really not in favor of any sort of serious change. Because these people haven't delivered on change. These people, they had the whole laundry list. All the, this is all the things we're going to do in Build Back Better. We're going to do universal pre-K. We're going to do elder care. We're going to do an extended uh, child tax credit. We're going to expand Medicare and lower the age. Originally they said 55, and then they moved it to 60. And then what happened? Here's what happened. So this, this, this is our politics now. You're witnessing our politics now. Competing billionaire donor bases determining who's going to get to run the country. And if Democrats win, you're going to get the philosophy of George Soros implemented, which my guess is a commitment to a centrist version of capitalism with extreme corporatism. You know, he might not hate gay people and might not hate minority groups and might be better on social issues, but that's as far as you're going to go. Because these are the people who are truly calling the shots behind the scenes. And again, it's not just George Soros on the Democratic side. It's also the Koch brothers on the Republican side and the other list of big money donors who actually run everything. It's disgusting that it ever got to the point where we had this. I mean, how do we have a system where somebody could just give $125 million to political causes overnight? Now, let me ask you something. How does this not violate the principle of one person, one vote or just equality in our political system. Because the fact of the matter is, who are these politicians going to listen to? The guy who cut them a check for $125 million? Or the grandma in Cleveland 
uh, who need lower prescription drug prices. Well, the grandma in Cleveland only donated $5 to a politician. She didn't donate any money to a politician. They're not going to listen to her. They're not going to listen. They're not going to listen to the people. They're going to listen to their funders. I don't know how anybody can defend this. I don't know how anybody can think this okay. And like, don't fall into the stupid partisan um, trap of like, because Republicans attack George Soros and because they have anti-Semitic conspiracies around him that go way too far. Therefore, you know what? George Soros is good for propping up Democratic leadership who's repeatedly not delivered on any of the things they're supposed to deliver on? No, it's grotesque. And by the way, this is also why even genuine, well-meaning progressives who somehow end up getting elected, why they have such an uphill battle. That's not to say they've strategically done well. They haven't. They're very weak and feckless and easy to co-opt. But even ones who do mean well and would have a proper strategy, you're running up against a behemoth and a juggernaut. Because, like, what, 80% of the party, 90% of the party is funded like this. And so, of course, they're going to represent their interests. And, of course, they're going to represent big pharma and the military-industrial complex and the health insurance companies and the Wall Street banks and all that stuff. Disgusting, man. Absolutely disgusting. In a world that make, made sense, the Democratic Party would take that money, throw it back in George Soros' face, and tell him to shove it up his ass. We only take money from small donors. We only raise money from small donors because that's who we're representing. We have no interest in representing your worldview, George Soros. So isn't it funny how there's no – there's also just no – real billionaire donors who happen to believe in, at the very least, social democracy, never mind like market socialism or something like that. Hmm, weird. Seems like once you accrue a certain amount of wealth, there's only a certain amount left you're willing to go, probably because you don't want uh, really steep taxes on yourself and uh, you don't want to lose your privileged position and your power in society. Well, this is all the power. Clearly, he has all the power. He bought one of the two political parties. And that's the real takeaway from this story. This donor bought one of the two political parties. Okay, next. Wait, let me do a little bit of math here real quick. Well, I'm very happy to tell you guys that for once I have some good news here on the show. Let me throw up these two articles for you. This is the first one from TechCrunch, GM to invest $7 billion into four factories as electric pickup truck battle heats up. $7 billion into four factories. That's phenomenal. USA Today, this is just the beginning, Biden says, as Intel plans $20 billion semiconductor complex in Ohio amid chip shortage. So, explain what's happening here a little bit. You have uh, the COVID pandemic brought about a supply chain crisis. We import so many things from other countries that we're completely dependent on, like uh, PPE, for example, the protective gear for COVID. Now, we, we import like all that stuff. Well, if the, if the supply chain seizes up because of COVID and because other countries are having a lockdown or whatever, what are we supposed to do? 
answer. We're screwed. You can't do anything. In the long run, you can do something. Bring back American manufacturing. Make anything we can make here, we should make here, because it's good to be self-sufficient and independent, but it's also good to give people jobs. That's a wonderful thing. By the way, massive credit to Dylan Radigan, who looked at that problem and said, I'm going to make a PPE factory here. And he did. And he did. He's one of a number of people who went in on making a PPE factory here in the U.S. Beautiful. And by the way, look, keep it real. I trust the, the quality of the products made in a union shop or factory in the U.S. more than I trust one from somewhere overseas. I do. I just do. American made. I'm a big fan of American made. That's something that where me and people on the right have something in common. Now, oftentimes, Republican politicians say they like American made, but they never do policies that bring that back. So they're frauds. There's a lot of average Joe and Jane Republican voters who believe in American made. Well, so do I. So do I. Okay. So um, for Intel, this is going to be the largest private sector investment in Ohio history. Quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a shortage of semiconductor microchips, which power thousands of products such as cars, cell phones, appliances, uh, gaming consoles, and medical devices. The, The shortage depleted vehicle inventory, producing global supply chain issues and increasing consumer prices on automobiles and other goods. The president also urged Congress... Uh, to pass something called the Chips for America Act, which would provide $52 billion to incentivize future semiconductor investments. And then there's a Senate bill that's part of it called the United States Innovation and Competition Act, which would authorize more than $90 billion for research and manufacturing. Speaker Pelosi said that um, Democrats are going to introduce their version of that soon in the House. It should pass the House, by the way. So currently, 12% of the world's microchips are made in the U.S. In the 1990s, that number was 37%. So thank you to uh, NAFTA and permanent normal trade relations with China and all of these so-called free trade deals, which are really just corporate outsourcing deals. The whole point of them was to boost the profits of the corporations and screw the American workers in the process. You can say that was a byproduct of it. Okay, fair enough. But that was the result of it. Well, you bring back manufacturing here in the U.S., and it's upsides across the board, man. Um, So Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger said that this Ohio, uh, quote, megasite is going to be like a small city. Two semiconductor fabrication plants are going to be there. Uh, It eventually could involve eight factories and $100 billion in investment over the next decade, including Intel and its suppliers and partners. Construction is expected to start this year, the first chips being produced by 2025. Um, GM, for that one, there are going to be four manufacturing sites with plans to create 4,000 new jobs and retain another 1,000 in the state. The investment includes construction of a new battery cell plant in Lansing and the conversion of GM's assembly plant in Orion for production of the Chevy Silverado EV and the electric GMC Sierra. The latter will be GM's second assembly plant scheduled to build full-size electric pickups. So, but keep it real. With just what's already been announced, this is American manufacturing is roaring back. That's what this is. And um, this is a wonderful thing. You're going to have a lot of jobs created as a result of this. Now, of course, you should always have a hint of skepticism here and just say, look, I'll believe it all when I see it. And we also don't know all the specifics as to the deals that were made how much in subsidies did they get from the Michigan government and the Ohio government, respectively, to do the microchip factory and the um, you know, electric vehicle factories? I don't know the answer to that. But I will say this. I have no problem 
with spending money to get stuff like this in place because that's stuff that my tax money should go towards. I'm proud if my tax money goes towards that. I just don't want to go towards endless war, and I don't want to go towards Wall Street bailouts. But to create long-term, good-paying jobs in these places, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. So this is wonderful, man. This is wonderful. And um, if you were Joe Biden and if you were the Democrats, well, here you go. Here's your, your midterm argument. You know, think about what Trump did. Trump lied about the carrier factory. I saved the jobs. It was supposed to be 600 jobs. Well, articles came out a year later, two years later, that were talking about how all the jobs ended up being outsourced anyway. So you got the worst of all worlds. You got the government stepping in and subsidizing these factories, and then the factories turn around and outsource the jobs anyway. So they rob the taxpayers and then screw the workers. Well, but he bragged as if he was doing something real. And at the beginning, everybody thought it was real, including me. And so he got a great round of press for it, and his approval rating was up at the time. Well, if I'm Joe Biden, if I'm the Democrats, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm bragging about. Look, American manufacturing is coming back under me. We're getting the Intel uh, you know, microchip or semiconductor factory. We're getting a number of GM factories for uh, electric vehicles. And if you vote for me, you're going to get more of this. This is what I'm going to do. That's what I would do if I was the Democrats, because it's the one decent thing that we've seen. There's the one decent piece of news. So more of this. This is what we want. This is all anybody really asks for. Maybe the only people against this are the anarcho-capitalists, you know, the Ayn Rand-style libertarians. Um, but basically everybody else. I mean, your average Joe and Jane, Republican and Democrat, looks at this and goes, great, great. I think we should make anything here that we can make here. I think we should make here. And um, that has upsides across the board. And I wouldn't even mind if consumer prices go up a little bit because, hey, you have to pay these workers better than you'd be paying somebody making pennies on the dollar overseas. Okay, go ahead, poll people. Ask them. You've got to pay 37 cents more for whatever consumer good. They'll be like, okay, is that supporting a nice union job here in the, in the country? Great. Love it. So... I'm happy, guys, giving you some good news for once on this show. Okay. Now, let's talk about Don Lemon. Actually, it's not just Don Lemon. CNN like all the other big media networks, are trying to get in on the streaming fun. So let me throw up this article here from Variety for you. Don Lemon will host weekly talk show on CNN+. Plus. Don Lemon. See, what CNN is doing – here, let me read this to you first. Don Lemon often uses his late-night show on CNN to get a little heated about the newsiest topics of the day. He may even get more latitude to discuss them online. Lemon will host the Don Lemon show on CNN+, Plus, the soon-to-launch subscription video hub, CNN Bill's new program is a weekly effort that will feature both the host and a studio audience and no limits to the conversation, except all the times Don Lemon wants to censor other people for talking. The move suggests CNN is continuing to invest heavily in its new venue. Backing a show with a studio audience adds new cost to production, and CNN has already ramped up hiring for, for the project, assigning new roles to journalists like Cassie Hunt, Casey Hunt and Chris Wallace, and commissioning a limited-run documentary series with Eva Longoria, other CNN anchors are also launching new programs, but Lemon's talk show is likely to require additional personnel beyond the scope of other projects for the service. Okay, so what CNN is doing here that is just beyond silly 
is they are, instead of doing a streaming service and catering to a different audience, because look, to keep it real, the audience they cater to now is not big enough because they suck. Their ratings suck. Fox News is number one, and then MSNBC and CNN, you know, jockey for position behind them, but way behind Fox News, and nobody really likes them. CNN is a network that's like on in the background at an airport when you're walking through it. Nobody actually, let me tune in and see what Wolf Blitzer has to say today. Nobody does that. But instead of like, hey, let's adjust our business model. Let's try to get more charismatic, authentic, honest people in this streaming realm. They're just taking all the people that get terrible ratings that are on their air and plopping them on the streaming service. I mean, you would have to be a, a business idiot to do that. But apparently they are that. They are. So you, you saw Casey, Cassie, whatever her name is, Hunt. You know who she is, right? She's on Morning Joe from time to time. She's going to have her own show. Okay, I would rather watch paint dry than listen to her talk. Just no charisma. There's, and she doesn't make up for the lack of charisma with, like, brilliant, salient points. I, I don't know how they decided to give her a show. It gets better. So you got Chris Wallace, who came from Fox News. Okay, thank you for this 65-year-old, 70-year-old Fox host that you're going to now put up there for people. By the way, how well is that going to do on streaming? Seriously. It's going to be like eight viewers. Um, Anderson Cooper is going to host a parenting show. Can't wait to see that one. Um, NPR host Audi, Audi, Audi Cornish is going to have a show. I don't even know who that is. They mentioned Eva Longoria. Instagram food guru Allison Roman is going to have a show. Former NBA player Rex Chapman is going to have a show. I mean, this thing, look, unless they pull some strings, have some tricks up their sleeve, rig some shit, or make a deal with some other company, um, this is going to be a phenomenal disaster. It's going to be a glorious disaster. Because they can't, who's going to pay for this? Who's going to want to stream this? You know, my guess is at some point they'll have to pivot and make some sort of deal where it gets shoved down our throats by making a deal with, I don't know, Spotify or Apple or Amazon or somebody and it's like force-fed to people. Because, look, that's what they did on YouTube, right? We know this. Whether it's CNN or MSNBC or any of the big networks, there was a time when they would post a video and get like 600 views on it. And then YouTube changed the algorithm to give them favorable treatment because, oh, there's so much misinformation that we need to prioritize authoritative news sources. So now if you watch anything involving news, you get super served the CNN stuff and the MSNBC stuff and the traditional media stuff because it's safe. So they have to like rig the system to get more views on YouTube. And my guess is they're not, they have to have tricks up their sleeve because they can't just be sink or swim on this streaming thing and think it's going to work because there's no way it's going to work. There's no way. So it's just amazing how perpetually underwhelming these people are. You know, it's never more clear than when looking at mainstream media that it's functionally an anti-meritocracy. It's not that the harder you work, the further you go, the more talented you are, the further you go. If anything, it's the opposite. If anything, it's the who can give me the most conventional wisdom, bland talking points, and those are the ones who will get uh, promoted. And so you got 47 hours of Don Lemon. You got more Anderson Cooper, Chris Wallace, Cassie Casey, whatever her name is, Hunt. It's going to be so bad. 
It's going to be so bad. And my guess is they will hide their numbers, baby. Woo, doggy. They will hide their numbers like nobody's business. <laughs> because if they don't, it'll be the most embarrassing thing ever. Oh, I saved the best fact for last year. Best fact for last. Uh, Don Lemon compared himself to Oprah when giving interviews about his new show. He's like, look, I've always been obsessed with talk shows, Johnny Carson, whatever, from when I was a kid until now. What I want to do is I want to be the Oprah and bring an Oprah-like theme to the new generation. Don, you ain't Oprah, dog. You ain't Oprah. You don't have it. You don't have it. I mean, what does Don Lemon do on his show now? He just goes out on his uh, CNN show and finger wags at people and plays the offended card a zillion times. It's not particularly thoughtful. It's just it's like elite liberalism distilled into its purest form. And now he thinks he's going to be Oprah on a streaming show that nobody's going to watch? Please, please. The self-aggrandizement of these people is astounding. Astounding. They have no idea how they're viewed. None of these people have any idea what the country thinks of them. Media, trust in media right now is at a historic low. And they act like everybody loves them. And like they're fucking A-list Hollywood celebrities. You're not. Nobody likes you. And I hope that CNN doesn't have tricks up their sleeve. And we get a sense of just how abysmal this thing fails. Because guess what? It's going to fail unless they rig it. Okay. You guys know I sing the praises of More Perfect Union time and time again. Everybody go subscribe on YouTube to More Perfect Union. Everybody go follow them on Twitter. They do the stuff that the big media network should be doing. So they cover labor stories endlessly. Here's what's going on with workers in America. This place is trying to unionize. This place is under attack. Whatever. That's what they do. They do a phenomenal job. So go subscribe. What I'm going to show you here is a little clip from a longer video. So go check out the longer video on More Perfect Union. But it's a little clip of um, this small Montana town called Libby. This is the one place in America that already kind of has a Medicare for all system, and it was ushered in as a little provision in Obamacare in 2009. Let's take a look and then we'll react. Libby is the site of one of the worst man-made, corporate-perpetuated environmental disasters in American history. This is how the story goes. Libby was the site of a vermiculite mine. The extracted ore, sold under the brand name Zonalite, was used for all sorts of things. What wasn't widely known for the decades the mine was in operation was that, though vermiculite itself is harmless, it was contaminated with chemolite asbestos. It was later revealed that W.R. Gray's, which owned and operated the mine for decades, knew about the danger to workers. It didn't happen to us. As anyone would like to say, it was done to us. That's Gayla Benefield. She's the Aaron Brockovich of and that's her daughter, Julie Johnson. Gayla wasn't feeling well while I was in town, so I caught up with her by phone. Julie called you the Aaron Brockovich of Libby, and that is the best. Yeah, she's paid. She's paid. Gayla's father, a minor, died from lung disease. Her mother also died from lung disease. And Gayla won one of the first wrongful death suits against Grace over her mother's death. So the company knew about asbestos exposure, was monitoring the damage on workers, and instead of telling people, they just tried to figure out how much work they could take out of a man before he died. 
W.R. Grace closed the mine in 1990. The W.R. Grace Company had a volunteer medical program, but they had a bar of getting access to care that was quite high. That's Dr. Brad Black. He helped lead the Center for Asbestos-Related Disease Clinic in town, which screens and monitors community members for, as the name suggests, asbestos-related diseases. And so a lot of people that were having significant health problems from their exposure weren't getting on the health plan. And then he figured it out two years in the bank account, and uh, the bag. I think Senator Bacchus understood that before long, they're, they're going to pull everything. There won't be anything for anybody. And that brings us back to 2009. Now is the time to deliver on health care. As Senator from Montana, Bacchus was aware of Libby's issues. And as chair of the Senate Committee on Finance, he had the means to do something about it. And that's where Section 10.323 of the Affordable Care Act was created. There's one of those instances where you just man, oh man, it's, 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 it's clear what had to be done. You just do it. You don't worry about bureaucracy. You don't worry about cost-effective analysis. You just do it, because otherwise... Section 10.323 basically gives people in Libby and the surrounding area benefits that nobody else in the country has. For one, it opens up Medicare access for those affected by the asbestos exposure, regardless of their age. And that can be a life changer for people like Julie. Julie was 46 when she was diagnosed with asbestos-related disease. She's been on Medicare through the Libby exception for about 10 years now. I had no insurance at the time. Yeah, when I got diagnosed, the only good outcome of it was, yes, I did get on Medicare. I was uh, diagnosed with fibromyalgia in probably 2003, 2004, so I had no insurance to pay for any medications with it. Once I was able to get on Medicare, I was able to get the treatment that I needed. I was able to go to the doctors and find out what the best treatment to do with the fibromyalgia. So the Medicare um, has been a godsend for me. Libby has a current population of 2,775. The CART Clinic says that between 2011 and August 2021, they had identified 2,281 people in the area under the age of 65 who qualified for Medicare assistance. So because of these provisions, thousands of people in Libby have benefited. And reporting from the time makes it seem like a seamless process, despite what critics of Medicare for All would have you believe about inefficient government bureaucracy. An official from the Social Security Administration set up shop around the county and saw 60 people in Libby on their first day in town. A little over a year later, about 600 people had been signed up. Yeah, it was really simple to get on Medicare. Uh, once you go down to the card clinic, they diagnose you. I just had to like fill out paperwork. I believe probably got online and was able to get right on the Medicare. The system isn't perfect, of course, but the interesting thing was that the part people had the most trouble with was the private insurance aspect. So there you have it. That's a phenomenal story, an amazing story, and something that you never really hear about. Maybe you've heard about it in passing on this show, but you've never heard the specifics of it, that's for sure. I'd never heard the specifics of it. Again, that goes to show the failure that our media is. This idea that Medicare for All is pie in the sky, it's not possible. And then we have a place in the U.S. right now that already has almost Medicare for All. It's not full Medicare for All. You have to have had exposure to that vermiculite or whatever it's called, um, mine. And so then you have the illness. And once you're diagnosed with illness, you immediately get into uh, their Medicare for All system you can see it's actually less bureaucratic, it's more efficient, and the biggest problem with it, as they correctly point out, is the Medicare Advantage part of it. Because Medicare only covers certain things, and then you have to get the Medicare Advantage plan, pay a little more, and then you get a private insurance angle of it. And they say that's the hardest part, that's the worst part. Everything should just be covered with the regular Medicare. So, I mean, look, again, total no-brainer. And by the way, amazing backstory. The guy who pushed for this, Max Baucus, he's a Democratic politician from Montana, this is a guy who was very vehemently anti-Medicare for all. During the healthcare debate, Bernie was pushing for Medicare for all. He was pushing for single payer. And Max Baucus was one of the biggest impediments to that. He was one of the loudest and most aggressive. Under no circumstance will I vote for Medicare for all. Well, Max Baucus wrote the provision that gave Libby Montana Medicare for all. And then when they talked to him here, he's like, look, it's, it was a no-brainer. You had to do it or people are going to die. Max, it's the same thing for the entire country. 
Because we don't have Medicare for all, 45,000 people die every year because they don't have health care. 30 million people are uninsured. 80 million people are underinsured. About 33% of COVID deaths could have been prevented if we had Medicare for all because those deaths are attributable to uninsurance. That's a report from Public Citizen that gave us that number. So the thing you said about Libby is true of the entire country. But just understand, all of the arguments, all like the administrative paperwork arguments against it, like, oh, it's too complicated and it's impossible to work out the logistics, nonsense. It's actually way harder under the current system. One of my friends, his dad is a doctor, and he talks about how the worst part of my job is dealing with private insurance paperwork. It's way easier when you deal with Medicare. And I know you guys are so used to uh, I've given these facts so many times that you guys can recite these facts back to me better than I could even recite them. But every time we talk about it, I feel compelled to bring it up because maybe this is somebody's first time watching a secular talk video and they don't know the reality of the situation. But the U.S. spends 17% of our GDP on health care. We cover fewer people and get worse outcomes. Why is that the case? Because we have a mafia middleman who just takes a cut, totally unnecessary middleman. Other countries, developed countries, cover everybody, and they only spend about 11% of their GDP on health care. We're 17%. They're 11%. They cover everybody and get better outcomes. That difference is nothing but price gouging and corporate greed and an unnecessary middleman. There was a study from The Lancet that found Americans owe $140 billion in medical bills. That's about one in five Americans in the U.S. has medical debt in collections. There's even more than that that's not in collections yet, but eventually will be. $140 billion. And if we were to implement Medicare for all, it would save $5 trillion over a decade. So you save money, and you cover everybody, and you get better outcomes. And the Commonwealth Fund study has us ranked dead last, 11th out of 11 of the systems studied when it comes to health care. There was that old World Health Organization study which had us ranked 37th in the entire world, but it was from like the year 2000. So you could say, hey, look, that's, that's a little out of date now, not even worth bringing up. But the Commonwealth Fund study is recent, and they do it, I think, every couple of years they do it. And we're always last. So the answers are obvious. The answers are right there. And now you know. We already have it in one place in the U.S. I mean, you could argue uh, the way Medicare works, even though there are problems, you know, Medicare, you need the Medicare Advantage, so there's a private angle to it as well. It doesn't cover dental or hearing or eyes, but, like, we already have one version of a single-payer system for old people in the country, and guess what? It polls as the most liked health care in the country, and there's less waste and abuse, much less when you compare the private numbers to the Medicare numbers. So the answers are obvious. It's the corruption that gets in the way. But uh, now you know the story of the specific Montana town that already has Medicare for all. So don't let anybody tell you, oh, maybe it's possible in, like, France or Canada, but it's definitely not possible here. (laughs) Thanks, bro. Are you getting a check cut directly from Humana? and Aetna into your bank account, or are you just so stupid that you repeat their propaganda uncritically? You tell me. Okay. Stuart Barney, 
spoke to Steve Forbes on Fox Business Network, and they're going to go after AOC here. Now, we're critical of AOC. There's, I think strategically she's a mess. I think she's weak. I think it's easy to co-opt her. She's kind of naive. But having said all that, every now and then she says something that's perfectly reasonable, and then all of right-wing media melts down and attacks her in the most vociferous and absurd way imaginable. Well, this is a perfect example of that right here. So Stuart Barney and Steve Forbes are going to go after her, and uh, let's watch, and then I'll give you the facts. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez blames corporate America for fueling inflation. I'll give you a quote, Steve. Here it is. There's a real distinction to be made between inflation and price gouging. A lot of these price increases are potentially due to just straight price gouging by corporations. You want to take that on, Steve Forbes? Well, we're talking about uh, gouging. How about gouging taxpayers on your student debts? We'll leave that aside for the moment and go to her point. No, there isn't price gouging. You may find certain instances of it. But any time you have inflation, they always look for scapegoats. I've mentioned the, the Christians in the Roman times. They blame the Christians. They blame witches during medieval times. Now they blame evil and price gouging corporations. No, it's bad government policy, whether it's the disastrous way they handle supply chains, printing too much money, spending too much money. Those are inflicted by the government, not by businesses. Could not be more smug and could not be more wrong. In fact, look at the facts. So this is from Insider. Corporations are using inflation as an excuse to raise prices and make fatter profits, and it's making the problem worse. That's from Insider. We also have a brilliant piece from Matt Stoller that you can see on the screen right now. Corporate profits drive 60% of inflation increases. Higher prices aren't just a result of, of supply chain chaos or government spending. Inflation is being driven by the pricing power and higher profits of corporations, costing $2,126 per American. So let me give you the gist of this. This is how this works. We get a little bit of inflation. The media flips out and covers it nonstop and then sensationalizes and fear mongers a little bit. Corporations sensing and realizing that the media is panicking over inflation then uses the fear of inflation to raise prices and blame inflation even for goods that aren't affected by inflation. Now, me saying, this isn't my opinion. This is a fact. And it was reported by a number of outlets that these guys themselves would consider reputable outlets. They might not agree with Matt Stoller, because he's a big anti-monopolist and they're pro-monopoly. But uh, the Business Insider report, that's a source that I'm sure they've used previously. So it absolutely is true. But, see, they go back to the same boogeyman. As they accuse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of doing that, that's what they do. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's boogeyman happens to actually be a boogeyman, and she's correct to point it out. Their boogeyman is nonsense. What's their boogeyman? Oh, big government spending bad. Big government spending bad. Okay, except we know that the big government spending had nothing to do, nothing to do with inflation because... There's a number of reasons for the inflation. The most important thing is the supply chain crisis. Because of the COVID pandemic, people staying home and ordering more stuff, um, you know, online. You got, you know, it's a global economy now. Things get shipped in from overseas. And so there were, it, everything just got clogged up. It also got clogged up because there were lockdowns in other countries. I mean, China has a zero COVID approach, for example. So stuff takes longer to get here. The ports are clogged. They're trying desperately to fix that problem, but they haven't really fixed that problem. And so that's one thing that's leading to inflation. Another thing is, and this is tied to that, you don't have manufacturing in the U.S. 
So like if you built up our manufacturing capacity, then you wouldn't have as much inflation because you wouldn't have the supply chain crisis because the supply chain could be the state next to you. You don't have to go through a clogged port in order to deliver the goods. So there's not enough U.S. manufacturing. That's another part of the problem. Now, notice, the solutions to the problems I just mentioned are what? Leftist policies, like busting up the monopolies and like bringing back U.S. manufacturing. They would never admit this because this doesn't fit their political ideology. And then corporate greed is the other thing, as you know, which I just described to you, which is they're using the fear of inflation to then just raise prices and blame inflation, even though it's not inflation. So, they, I mean, they couldn't be more wrong. And then final thing is when he takes that random shot at um, student debt. He compares student debt to price gouging. He's like, oh, you're going to price gouge the, the taxpayers to pay off your student debt? <laughs> Where's my top hat? <laughs> Would he say that about high school and the way high school is funded right now? That's how public high school is funded. It's funded through tax dollars. Would he say that about elementary school, public elementary school, or public kindergarten? We say, ha, 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 little Timmy, I know you're a toddler who's going to school, but you're price gouging me as a taxpayer. <laughs> Where's my monocle and my pipe? This is not a pipe. This is way cooler than a pipe. No disrespect to pipe smokers. <laughs> I got the fucking the vape all in the way. Anyway, um, yeah. The idea of free college, free higher education, including free trade school, by the way, which is another thing I support, is just giving people equal opportunity. And by the way, it pays for itself in the long run and then some. Because when you invest in the – think of it as an investment in the population. And then when you invest in the population, later on, they end up making more money and they end up paying more in taxes. So it's better for everybody. It's better for everybody. Uh, Of course, these guys would look at – just fundamental basics in a modern civilized society. And they say, that's price gouging. <laughs> Any social democratic program, I guarantee you they would say the same thing about universal health care. It's price gouging to make sure that you can get that new kidney and not go bankrupt. <laughs> God, I don't know how anybody watches this. And look, there's a new contingent on the right, at least among the voters and of the base, that like to fancy themselves, you know, like, populist. Like, no, I'm, I'm like, pro-working class, but on the right. Okay, fair enough. I'll take you at your word. So what do you think of these guys? What do you think of these guys? Defending corporations at all costs, no matter how wrong they happen to be. This is not populism. This is elitism 101, and it's obvious. Next. Oh, this segment breaks my heart, man. It really does. So um, Ro Khanna went on Morning Joe, and uh, he was asked about Joe Manchin, and he said a similar thing about Joe Manchin previously, but he's leaning into this point, and this point just could not be more wrong. Let's take a look. Um, what is your view of where the focus should be of Democrats in this midterm year? Um, you've sort of had interesting takes on uh, Senator Manchin, for example, where you said, I understand what he's dealing with. He's, he's running in West Virginia, a state that voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly. Some of your progressive colleagues have suggested he be primaried. What do you think that the, your party should be looking at? Uh, the, the hopes of holding on to a house, you've had retirements. It, it doesn't look good at this moment from the outside. Well, I'm so cautiously hopeful, but we ought to respect Senator Manchin. 
We ought to understand where he's coming from. We ought to give him the deference of coming up with what uh, he wants. And he's going to propose climate investments. He's going to say, let's have preschool for every three-year-old and four-year-old. It's going to be for Medicaid expansion. Let's pass that. That will be historic. It'll show we can get something done. I think we ought to get it to the president's desk. So I have a lot of respect for him. I think we can come uh, to a compromise. How long have these negotiations been going on, Congressman Khanna? How long? How long have they been going on? Six months? Longer? This entire time, homeboy could have said, here's exactly what I'm in favor of and here's what I want to do. He didn't at any point. In fact, he was asked directly by the media a number of times, what are you in favor of? He said, I don't want to negotiate the public. I'm sure he's asked by Biden behind the scenes, what exactly are you in favor of? What exactly do you want? Didn't have an answer. Didn't have an answer. Why are you acting like he's a good faith actor? He is corrupt, Congressman Ro Khanna. Joe Manchin is corrupt. He's bought off. Have you read the article in The Intercept called Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire? I mean, it lays it out in no uncertain terms. Hey, here's what's going on with this guy. He gets personally wealthy off of dirty energy, and then he sits on the committee and makes decisions about whether or not we should get off dirty energy and try to attempt to fix climate change. Do you not see the problem there? Do you not see how his daughter is directly involved in price fixing for pharmaceuticals and openly caught in emails dead to right saying like, yeah, how do we come up with an excuse to price gouge people on this stuff? The guy is an absolute corporate whore. He's not, he's not an honest actor who has ideological disagreements with you. That's not what it is. If he had ideological disagreements, he could have laid them out at any point in the last six months. He didn't. He killed all of Build Back Better after saying, I promise you we're going to make a deal. Just, just pass the bipartisan infrastructure deal first, and then we'll work out the details. And now you're saying it's a good idea to let him just write the entire legislation and then just pass it. Well, how do you know he's going to write a piece of legislation that's reasonable? There's no reason to believe that. He voted 50 to 60% of the time with Donald Trump, and you think he's going to write an unobjectionable piece of legislation that should get the support of the left flank in Congress? On what planet is that the case? And you say, oh, he's in favor of something on climate change. Well, no, he's not, because he stripped out some of the original provisions in the original Build Back Better deal. So he's not in favor of something that's sufficient on climate change. He's in favor of universal pre-K. How much do you want to bet that if slash when, and by the way, likely he won't bring up anything, but even if he does bring up something, how much you want to bet that whatever his piece of legislation is with universal pre-K, it won't be universal? How do I know that? Because he's not in favor of universality. He said he wants means testing for fucking every provision. So what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What is with these permacucked Dems and their mindset of like, we're only as good as the most conservative Democrat, and that's okay? Well, if you're only as good as the most conservative Democrat, then just admit you are 50 to 60% of the time with Donald Trump. So you are literally the half Republican Party. That's what you are. You're not the Democratic Party. You're the half-Republican Party. You are the republican light party. Just admit it, if that's the case. Why are we acting like Joe Manchin is president? Why is he getting deference in these conversations? Well, you need to find a way to get him and work with him, and that's the only way that we're ever going to get anything done. Read about LBJ. Read about FDR. Read about the tactics that they use to twist arms. Look, you lead the kind way. You lead the open-minded way. You lead the nice way. You lead the backslapping way, and oftentimes that works with people. But if it doesn't work, guess what? Time for some new tactics. 
Time for a carrot or stick approach. Time to play hardball. But there was never hardball, ever. They went right from, let's be nice and backslapping to, okay, we're cucks. You write the entire legislation and then we'll pass it. And oh, look, you still haven't written any legislation. Maybe you just don't want anything passed because you're corrupt. Oh, my God. Look, I, I, I like Rokana personally. He's a lovely guy. But this is just so naive. It's so naive. He goes on to make a good point, similar to a segment we did earlier. We got a new Intel factory coming to Ohio, which is a giant microchip semiconductor factory. We have a new um, you know, GM or three or four new GM factories coming to Ohio. That's all good stuff. Apparently, the administration was involved in that deal. He's like, hey, Democrats should talk about this, should run on this, should do more of this. He wrote a, a great new book about how it's time for a new deal, and what we could do is create technology jobs all around the country. And not that sort of like learn-to-code type bullshit. No. But you have you know, Silicon Valley jobs can come to the Midwest, come to the middle of the country, reinvigorate the economy. They can actually be factory jobs. That's a good idea. I support Rokan on that front. But this line that you're only as good as the most conservative Democrat is defeatism 101. And it's functionally corporatism, because he's a corporatist, Joe Manchin, and you're saying I co-sign whatever he wants to do. So when you have the left flank of the Democrats co-signing the most right-wing Democrats, that means the left-wing Democrats are just being right-wing Democrats. Forgive me for demanding better than that. Final story of the day. Final story of the day. So there's a new report that just dropped. NSA spying is even worse than you think. CNN politics. NSA watchdog finds concerns with searches of Americans' communications. Huh. Interesting. So they say here, the National Security Agency failed to follow both court-approved and internal procedures designed to prevent officials from using a controversial foreign surveillance law to inappropriately monitor Americans' communications, the NSA Inspector General found in a semi-annual report released on Monday. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, allows the U.S. Court, or U.S. government excuse me, to collect communications such as emails and phone records of foreigners on foreign soil without warrants. But while it broadly prohibits the intelligence community and law enforcement from targeting U.S. persons, there is a loophole that allows the NSA and CIA to query 702 gathered information for Americans' records if a query is reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information. Still, those searches are governed by a set of internal rules and procedures designed to protect Americans' privacy and civil liberties. The Inspector General revealed a number of concerns involving U.S. person identifiers used as query terms against FISA Section 702 data, according to the report. So... The NSA is like, well, we're not allowed to look at American stuff. But if we have, if a query is reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence information, well, then we can look at American stuff. Yeah, but you're just going to use that loophole for everything. You're just going to say, I don't know, maybe it's likely if we look at this American, maybe we'll get some foreign thing out of it. You could just lie about that. And there's no standards. There's no guardrails here. By the way, so you have this, this report, which is supposed to hold these guys accountable. It's like, okay, here's the report. They're not being held accountable. Anyway, moving on. Wait, I thought you guys were going to hold them accountable. So what's going to happen? You're telling me there's wrongdoing. Are you going to stop the wrongdoing? They go on to be like, well, they kind of give us their word that they're, going to, they're not going to do bad stuff. So 
Okay. What? Who can take these people at their word? Guys, this is a brazen violation of your Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. This is unconstitutional. This is against the ultimate law of the land. So it's even worse than you think. Even when we have some guardrails put into place, even when the courts, a number of courts have said, yeah, you got to stop spying on Americans without a warrant. You can't do that. They're like, cool. So we have a rule that we can't spy on Americans, but there's a loophole where if we think maybe that an American is tied to a foreign person, then we can spy on them. So we're just going to invoke that all the time. Well, then we've had the ruling. We know you're in the wrong. We know it's illegal. We know it's unconstitutional, and you do it anyway. It's time to lock people up. It's time, to get, it's time to put them in prison. We cannot have this. And look, I don't care who you are, but if you're on the left, you care about civil liberties. If you're on the right, you say you care about the Constitution, and that's your most important thing. Well, they are violating the Constitution in no uncertain terms. None. I went back and went through the uh, catalog of NSA stories that I've covered on the, over the years on this show. And there's so much stuff. The NSA spied on World of Warcraft and Xbox Live. I don't know what they thought they were getting. I'm sure they didn't get anything, but they were spying on that stuff. They spied on Angry Birds. I mean, I didn't even know there was a communication possibility in Angry Birds. They spied on Congress. They didn't even really deny it when they were pressed on it. The worst one, perhaps, is they spied on their love interests. And it was so common that they had a term for it. They called it Love Int, which was short for Love Intelligence. This is what we know they did. And by the way, a lot of this stuff we know because of Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald going back in the day when that stuff was released. Obama, on his way out the door, beefed up NSA spying. Trump, when he was in office, beefed it up even more and put it on steroids. Under Trump, they collected over 500 million phone calls of Americans. So the Democrats and the Republicans are both violating your constitutional rights. The NSA deleted incriminating evidence of their illegal spying when they were caught red-handed. They also spied on the Pope. They spied on world leaders. I think that head of Germany or the head of France or or both. Um, They spied on people's porn habits. So in other words, the last thing that they should ever spy on and certainly don't have a right to do and has nothing to do with terrorism, they spy on it. They got records on you. They originally said, look, this is just for terrorism. This is, that's, all, that's all we're doing all the spying for. Then eventually, the goalposts moved. Well, terrorism and maybe some domestic crimes a little bit sprinkled in here and there. Even one of the authors of the Patriot Act, I think his name is Sensenbrenner, last name was Sensenbrenner. He was like, this, I didn't have this in mind when I wrote this thing. What are you doing? This wasn't the intent of it. And they're like, well, I don't know, terrorism's bad, crimes are bad, so we're just going to spy. We're just going to spy. Back up office. They had an audit years back. In one year alone, there were 2,776 violations from the NSA. These are rogue government agencies totally out of control. Whether it's the NSA or the CIA or the FBI, you do not trust these people. They're not looking out for your best interest. And as they pretend like they're the law and order people, people upholding the law, they are violating the law on a routine basis. Now, my guess is, even talking about this NSA thing, and it's sad, it's a sad reality, on top of the algorithm not pumping it out, of course, 
but you're also going to have just genuinely not as much interest in a story like this because everybody's like, yeah, I know there's Zionists. What are you going to do? And that's where we are now with our civil liberties and with the Constitution and with our rights. Well, I kind of knew that was the case. It's like with income and wealth inequality stories, I'll come across some amazing new facts. Look at how bad it is. And I'll do a segment on it. It'll get like half the views of some other segment. Why? Because unfortunately, we're all so mega cucked that we're like, oh, yeah, I know. It's as bad as can ever be bad, and I can't even make up a statistic that would be worse than the reality of the income and wealth inequality we have. So what are you going to do? So that's where we are. Dismantle it. Get rid of the NSA. You want to do police work? Do standard old school police work. Get a fucking warrant and go about it the right way. Well, you got to reel them in because they are the criminals, that's for sure. All right, guys, we are done. Everybody tune in to Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. We got Ben Burgess on. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.